0: Blog Talk Radio.
1: Gals, this is the long road to ruin. I am your host, the Mandator Reporter, and frankly, I'm mortified, Mr. Mark Rattledge. Tonight, we are continuing our look at baseball movies. We went from uh, we started with the Little leagues, with the Bad News Bears, and we're going straight to the major leagues tonight with Major League, a 1989 uh, film starring Tom Berenger, Charlie Sheen, Wesley Snipes. Night- Bob Euchre, and a host of fun, 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 fun people. Uh, really one of the great sports movies, um, in the in the uh, comedy genre. One of um a movie that I saw as a kid. I guess I had to have been twelve at the time. Um, but even then I, I even though I wasn't a huge baseball fan, I loved the movie. Um used to love uh Rick Vaughn, played by Charlie Sheen before he went on crack. Uh walking up the old wild thing. I I dug it. Um, then, of course, the sequel where they lost Wesley Snipes but gained Omar Epps. Um, I always enjoyed that movie too. And I didn't know that there was a Major League three: Back to the minors. And it's uh, it's really Major League only in, in, in name only. There's a few there's a few holdover characters from the previous two movies, but I, I honestly don't know what Warner Brothers was thinking with that one. So we're going to look at all three of those movies tonight. And uh, right now I want to bring out my co-host. He's the man with all the facts and figures. This is Mr. Sean Comer. How do you do, sir?
2: Hi, everybody. I'm Sean. You're not, and you're listening to the one and only show on the Internet that money back guarantees you. We will tell you that the reason why we hate a movie is because it's led by women. (laughs) Don't worry about it. We won't mask it. We won't leave any room for debate. Trust us, folks. We'll tell you. We we've always been one hundred percent on it every single time every single time that's ever been the case. Just say it has never, ever been the case. So but no, I mean we'll we'll make sure that we're totally clear on that in the future.
1: I watched a uh video today, I don't know if you're familiar with it. you probably are, we've talked about it before. The Scream Junkies and they did Why Does Everyone Hate the New Ghostbusters? And I left a comment on uh, on the video, and I said, "Look, I've seen both trailers. I've laughed twice. That, you know, these are supposed to be comedies. Mission accomplished. <laughs> you know? I don't, I don't know, I understand what the issue here is. If you know, either you laugh or you don't laugh. If you don't laugh, okay, well, it's not for you. But if you laugh, great. You know, people people are acting as if uh, this thing is is more important than it really is. But um,
2: you know yeah, I mean, You know what? Allow me to." Allow me to dust off my soapbox for a second and sort of make my feelings known about this. It's not that it's a movie necessarily of great social importance. It obviously isn't. It's Ghostbusters. Yes, Ghostbusters, it's a lot of people right in the nostalgia zones because a lot of us grew up with the first and second movies. Uh, I, I was two years old when the first one came out, so I'm much more, familiar. I'm kind of much more attached in a weird way to the second one than I am to the first one. At the very least, I love them both about equally. But I think what gets a lot of people about it is that this has become a movie that it's very hard to have. Uh, a really fair, critical conversation about. Or at least it's one where it's hard to have a fair conversation in the sense that anybody who has something negative to say about it, judging just from the merit of the trailers, is, is instantly backed into a corner by being called a misogynist, a troglodyte, a woman-hater, someone who's just put off and insecure because it's a movie with a cast of strong, capable female protagonists. And and allow me me to kind of give the devil a due. Yes, yes, there are a lot of people who do have the irrational, completely ridiculous issue with it, but they're opposed to it, because it's for female Ghostbusters. That is a major, major hang-up for some folks. And I don't think that's fair That's fair at all. I don't buy into the sense at all, in any sense whatsoever, that audiences either in terms of TV or movies are going to be instantly put off by something with... Uh, a very strong female lead or several with a lot of agency. Uh, There's too much proof to the contrary. But the problem is we're now two official trailers into the marketing campaign for this movie. And everybody keep in mind, trailers ostensibly have one job, one job only that they are expected to accomplish, and that is opening night, put as many asses every 18 inches as possible. That's what they are. They're a sales pitch. They're meant to get people into the theater. They are very strategically and meticulously crafted to do that one thing.
0: Uh,
2: two trailers in, the first one, folks, has nothing to do with strictly the fact that it's Kristen Wiig, Kate McKinnon, Dot Jones, and Melissa McCarthy. has everything to do with the fact that that trailer sucked. It absolutely, utterly sucked, and personally speaking, it murdered any enthusiasm that I had left to see this. I was actually somewhat cautiously optimistic about wanting to give it a fair chance. I saw that, and I went, well, this looks like charmless, hot, forgettable garbage, uh, I guess it would be charmless, pepid, forgettable garbage well, it would be the better word. But anyway, I can, I can slap myself around over semantics later. The second trailer comes out, and it's better, but it still doesn't strike me as very funny. It still doesn't strike me as really being necessarily something all that charming or enjoyable. As several people have pointed out, the the special effects for being a movie movie made in 2016 are roughly akin to Disney's The Haunted House, and that's really a pretty fair comparison. Uh, There were a few funny moments, although, I'm sorry, fuck a big soggy bag of you to whoever shoot in that stupid mosh pit joke with Dot Jones who who already in the trailers is looking not like a a really kind of fleshed out every woman character like Ernie Hudson was in the first one, Uh, you know, kind of a female analog to that, but is looking more like some stock character that would be more in place in the Tyler Perry movie. And (laughs) for, for, for those of you who haven't seen it, there's there's this moment where they're supposed to be busting a ghost that has taken over a metal concert and the, they take to the stage and kind of crowd surf their way, their way out to, I guess, get a better angle with their proton packs. And Dot Jones, care, I forget if I've heard what her actual character, actual name is or not, forgive me. Um, and, you know, Dot, to give you some idea for those who have never seen her is a, is a, is a taller black one, um, just, you know, goes to fall into the crowd, everybody clears out of the way, and just, it was like they threw a dartboard at the most obvious, cringeworthy, fading line they could have on a dartboard, and what they fell on was, I don't know if it's a race thing or it's a woman thing, but I'm mad as hell right now. Oh God! You okay? <laughs> baby, was funny. Now you're now you're just being fucking pet. But <laughs> get, but getting back to the bigger getting back to the bigger point though, is uh, this creates a couple problems. Number one, we've got for for all the legitimate problems there are problems there are with people who are stuck decades in the past who can't accept, even after the likes of movies like Alien, Terminator, Resident Evil, shows like Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Jessica Jones and Veronica Mars and Alias, who still can't accept uh, capable female, pro- female protagonists, is you've now got a case where even the worthy criticism is being shouted down as being just a product of misogyny and systemic sexism. And what worries me about this is also the fact that now it's kind of planting that seed. Suppose this hits theaters, and it really does, just absolutely tanks, like abysmal. And it tanks in a market where right now, Hollywood has come a long way but has a long way yet to go in terms of how it depicts women. Now, then you have to fear that studios are not going to look at this fairly and assess it as okay, this movie failed because it had a lot of creative shortcomings that we underestimated or or overlooked and instead are going to write it off as well, it kind of the way Marvel behind the scenes kind of it kind of has anything having to do with Black Widow. Recently is, well, it failed because audiences A aren't ready or B don't want to accept female heroines in big mainstream properties, and that would be really would be really unfortunate. And I'm all for anything that throws out there. Strong female fictional characters for a new generation of young girls and girls and women to sort of look up to and champion as sort of, uh, well, we had growing up, our Indiana Jones, our Ghostbusters, our, our, our Robocops, if you will, throw out any other uh, male action lead you want to, and... It's going to continue to kind of starve Hollywood of that because, well, we came to a place on the Internet where we start, where, you know, we were thinking like hammers and every problem looked like, every problem looked like a nail. So, and especially in terms of what James Rose had to say about it yesterday in his video, in his video, where he explained why he, why he, even as an openly, very publicly devout Ghostbusters say, was not going to be reviewing the movie for Cinemassacre. Which, folks, and the Daily Doc got this particularly on They referred to him as a paid
1: movie critic.
2: Well, yeah, he's paid in terms of the fact that he gathers ad revenue because Cinemassacre is his fucking site. He's an independent content creator. He can choose to review or ignore whatever the holy hell he wants to. And what's more, Just for the sake of, you know, Peter Pedantic being pedantic, he's not a movie critic per se. That's the angry video game nerd. Uh, He's more known for that and Borg Jane than he is for the actual cinemassacre videos. But he outlines a litany of reasons, most of which being his kind of purest devotion to the original franchise. As to why... He he kind of would kind of wouldn't touch it. He, he just flat out, flat out, flat out said no. I refuse. And the instant write-off was, oh well, he just doesn't want to review want to review it because he's being misogynistic and he hates women and he just doesn't like the fact that it's all female cast. What the fuck do you get that? His reasons were actually mostly valid, except for the bullshit about the fact that it's called Ghostbusters. Um, so it's, it's not something that I personally am going to go see. I hope it proves me wrong and it turns out to be better than expected. Uh, Who knows? It's highly fucking unlikely, but it might finally be the movie where I find Melissa McCarthy funny. Um, at the same time, after we sign off, I might go shit a five pound gold brick into my friend's toilet. (laughs) About, About equal probability there. But if it proves me wrong, it proves me wrong, and I'll admit it. But, you know, a few weeks ago I went off on the rant to kind of bring this all the way back around to our show. Uh, I said it's okay to like things. It's okay for everybody to like something different. Okay, that's true. But it's also okay for anybody who dislikes something, who dislike it, for whatever reason they want to. So on this very show, I, I, I've occasionally thrown out smirking little, smirking little remarks, noting that um, most of the time when Gavin and Pat have any thoughts on anything, usually the most public thoughts are negative ones. Um, and I may disagree. I may disagree with them. In fact, about eight or nine times out of ten, I. Out of 10, I do. However, they're also entitled to view that however they they want to. That's the beauty of free speech. It's the double-edged sword of it, the self-policing side, that says, yes, you're allowed to hold whatever opinion you want to as long as you are not hurting anybody. However, and I don't mean hurting somebody's feelings. I mean, as long as you are not directly diminishing somebody's quality of life with what you're saying, as long as you're not putting somebody in imminent peril, like physical or material peril, you're allowed to think damn near whatever you want to. However, everybody else is also allowed to call you an asshole. That's also true. However, however, the one problem with calling somebody is an asshole is you also have to remember, as one friend of mine pointed out yesterday, you have to think about why you have a problem with that person's criticism. What is really your deal with it? Why do you dislike? Why do you dislike something? Why do you dislike what somebody has? What somebody has to say about it? It's it's not something I expect is ever going to happen on the internet. It ain't going to happen, but. All I have to say is it really, really drastically wounds criticism. And, folks, uh, quite frankly, if you keep this up every time you have a sacred cow of a movie you're excited about, for whatever reason, either for it taking a progressive stand or just because you really dig the licensed property or it's something that means a lot to you, if every time somebody decides to spit roast your sacred cow, you want to go and imagine some kind of bigger reason why they, why they hate it beyond what they're, act, what they're actually saying, it's going to create an environment wherein eventually you're going to have a lot of people who aren't going to want to speak ill of anything. And it kind of becomes the death of standards. So please, everybody, accept that not everybody has to like what you like Also accept that everybody is entitled to like or dislike or dislike anything for whatever reason they please. And they don't necessarily need to answer to you for it. And sometimes, every now and then, sometimes, shit is shit. End of soapbox. Um,
1: Okay. <laughs> that you're able to get all that off your chest. We'll talk, we'll revisit probably a lot of what you said there when we actually talk about Ghostbusters a little bit closer to the movie, uh, since we're going to look at the first two movies um, around the time that uh, this this new one's coming out. But I mean, have, have,
2: seri- have we seriously not done Ghostbusters yet? I could have sworn we had.
1: Nope.
2: Oh, dude, now I'm really excited. I kind of wish I had saved that. <laughs>
1: I was only rattling that off because I thought we had already covered that one. Nope. Oh, so, so back to Major League. Um in the of now time, let me get right to the point here. Uh so we have uh a team left to uh the widow who's played by uh Margaret Witten, She plays Rachel Phelps a former showgirl. And She's, she's uh, been given a deal where, she, where if a team comes in dead last, uh, she'll get money to move the team to Miami. Uh, and so with no husband and, a, uh, and no love for the city of Cleveland, she says, that sounds about right. So she goes to assemble what she thinks is the most ridiculous team she could possibly put together. And God knows they'd have to come in dead last. These people stink. So you have a pitcher, uh, who's coming out of prison for stealing a car, uh, Ricky Vaughn, played by Charlie Sheen, who pitches very fast but can't find the home plate. Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, you,
1: have a, you have an old catcher in Tom Berringer. Uh Already on the team uh, is Corbin Bernson's uh, Dorn, who is very close to retirement and doesn't want to take any balls to the face. He plays shortstop. Um she brings in a she brings in a Cuban who practices voodoo and talks to his bat, um, and uh, he can he can hit home uh, homers off the fastballs, but I think it's like the curveball or something else he can't hit. Uh, the bat is three, afraid four, of it. Three. Yeah. Um, former oh, uh, um, president
2: of the United States, <laughs>
1: And then uh, Wesley Snipes is sort of a walk-on. Um, he, uh, he's very, fair, you know, fair, he calls himself Willie Mays Hayes, and he uh, was a run like run like Hayes, but hits like Mays or something along those lines. I can't remember how, how to yeah, phrase it.
2: Yeah, yeah who, who turned out to be one of the great mysteries of the movie, because the one thing in all three movies, well, I mean, he never even mentioned the third movie, but in the first two movies, that never gets explained. Where the fuck did he
1: come from? Yeah, he just walks. He just walks in, and then they immediately out.
2: Okay, no, no, no. He doesn't just walk in. You're saying he walks in is like saying he was dancing for nickels on the corner, and just happened to wander to wander into Indian Spring training, and, has, and was taken off running from security when he was peeing on the outfield wall, and that was discovered holy shit, he's fast and we need an 8 off here. No, he doesn't just walk in. He shows up in a fucking Rolls Royce. He gets dropped off by a goddamn luxury car, dressed to the nines, showing up like he's making like league all-star franchise player salaries. And yet nobody knows last year. Nobody has nobody has heard of him. And in fact, they're not even convinced to keep him until, well, funny enough, security does actually throw him out on his ass. Um he he wakes up, thinks he's thinking he's late for the day's workout and basically blows away two guys who are always already halfway through the 40 after starting about ten or twenty yards behind him and running in his PJs, it's, I want a movie about. I want a movie or a story or a comic or something about where the hell Willie Mays Hayes came from.
1: So he comes in, and he. Uh, they throw him out, and as you said, uh, he ends up uh, showing how fast he can run, and they go, "Oh, well, okay. Well, regardless of whatever mystery place he came from, we're going to keep him." So they start to assemble this ragtag group of guys, and of course, they go on a losing streak. Um, over the course of the movie, whatever uh, piccadillos and problems they start to have, they start to overcome them. Um, some of the lesser characters, now that I'm thinking of it, we have a older pitcher uh, who sort of takes turns with Vaughn, um, who's, um, who's also a believer, a Christian, and he gets into it with Serrano, who is the, the Cuban voodoo guy, a couple of times throughout the movie and you know by the end of it they they have an understanding there's a very very small subplot between um Dorn and Vaughn um Tom Berenger's uh Jake Taylor who's you know the old catcher with the bad knees there's a there's a love story with him and Renee Russo that's part of the movie in any case uh getting to the point they Find out about midway through the movie that they were supposed to lose. Um, and that inspires them to, you know, they're basically told that if they can't get the job done, they'll just all be, you know, replaced with even worse players. So what to do? Well, the only thing they can do is, you know, win, win, their, uh, win the championship. They go on this winning streak, and then there becomes a conflict in the team where, you know, where you have. Rachel Phelps, who tries to make things harder on them, you know, first she puts them on a crappy plane, and then then they're on a bus. Uh, She won't fix old equipment, et cetera, et cetera. She's doing everything possible to make sure the team um, is in the worst shape possible to win games. And yet, despite it all, uh, inspired by the hatred of her, um, they, uh, they win the big one at the end against the New York Yankees, the Yankees who at the start of the movie trounced them something awful. Um, one,
0: call,
1: of have, one of the things they figure out about Charlie Sheen, who, you know, is one of the leads in the movie, is that the reason why he, he can't seem to find home plate is because he can't see. So he gets glasses. And, uh, <laughs> one of the, one of the lines in the movie that I love, and I, I used to say this as a kid, actually, my friends and I would say it to each other. just tells you how much this movie, you know, how this, this movie stuck to myself and my friends. We wouldn't just say, fuck you. We would say, fuck you, Joe Boo, which, of course, is the one.
2: <laughs> you know <laughs> of of course, course is is funny? I was, actually, I was talking about this movie with my friend Jeremy earlier, and he actually brought up something that had been in the back of my mind as, as an unsung virtue of this movie. is It's re- is much like Scarface. It's really fun to watch this on cable, and I'll tell you why. It's because, for the most part, the ADR is really pretty good. And that's one of the few times where they had to swap something out for broadcast standards that actually worked pretty well. Uh, if you ever watch it on broadcast, you'll note that instead of fuck you, Joe Boo, it's up yours, Joe Boo. And it, it fits. And it fits because fuck you, Joe Boo, four syllables. Um, uh, up yours, Joe Boo four syllables. Later in the movie, you have kind of the exact opposite. It's, it's something that's so funny because it's so goddamn badly done. Um, there's, a, there's a moment near the climax where Vaughn is coming in to finish out the game. And prior to this, uh, there, was a, there was a little bit of things coming to a head between he and Roger in which Roger's wife found out that he was fucking around while he was on the road. And so Roger's wife went up to Ricky and gave him a chance to stick his slugger in her cleanup slot. And Roger finds out about it, well, finds out about it because because his wife just flat out tells him. And Rick is told when he gets to the ballpark to just keep about a zip code of distance between himself and Dorn. Just get out to the bullpen. Just be away from him by the time he gets out on the field for warmups. Later in the game, comes in. Dorn's playing third, like he does. Vaughn comes to the mound, like he does. He's got the ball, talks talks with Jake. All of a sudden, up comes Dorn, and Vaughn is just bracing for it. In the movie, in the theatrical cut, Dorn just says, says, I just got one thing to say to you, Vaughn. Strike this fucker out. (laughs) On TV, it turns into the equivalent of the Bad Samurai uh, uh, English dub, (laughs) which for some goddamn reason makes me just crack up every single time because... He's still mouthing the word fucker, and the camera's still on, and when he does it, it doesn't get away. But he says, strike this guy out. (laughs) It's like I keep keep expecting Rick every time to say, yes, Roger, son, I shall bring honor to the tribe. (laughs) Um, Although I'm I'm afraid because last time this guy hit one that still hasn't landed yet.
1: Yeah. Uh, So overall – um, like I said, it, it's hard to find a whole lot to criticize about the movie. Um, it has a solid premise. It's funny. There are still lines. I mean, it's one of those things where uh, there's a show on Screen Junkies, does it hold up? And so that is the question when we look back at some of these, you know, do they hold up even today? And it does. It's, uh, the performances are fine. The movie is carried by a very charismatic Tom uh, Berenger, who a little less charismatic in the next movie. But this one, he's a fine lead you know, as he's chasing Renee Russo all around Cleveland. Uh, Renee Russo is fine in her, you know, as the character who's trying to grow up and get over this guy and move on with her life, and, you know, but is still somewhat attracted to him. Um, you know, Charlie, this is before Charlie Sheen went all kinds of crazy, so he's actually charismatic and fun to watch. Um, this is before Wesley Snipes started having problems with the federal government, and his head got too big. So it's, it's fun to look back at some of these people who have gone off the deep end, <laughs> Um, is there's a lot of memorable lines in it. Fuck you, Jobu, just being one of them. Um, there's a lot of great stuff with Lou. I still laugh every time. Uh, uh, Whitten walks into the locker room and uh, he's standing there, stark naked. <laughs> and she's like, "Don't you think you gotta put some clothes on?" It's like, "Ma'am, I'm too old to be running it hunting." <laughs> she's like, "Well, I can take it if you can." I'm um, too I'm old to go diving in the locker Yeah. So, um, Major League is a very fun movie to watch. You know, it, it follows the same tropes as every other sports movie that we talked about with the bad news bears. Um, the only thing that's a little bit different, the only trope that's missing is they don't, they don't ever try to find somebody. Once the team is established at the very beginning of the movie, uh, they don't, there's, there's no um, recruitment scene. They don't ever seek to replace anybody necessarily. It becomes... It becomes about the relationship well, among the among the team more than well, more than anything else.
2: That's that's because basically the whole first act of the movie is the recruitment trope.
1: Right. <laughs>
0: uh,
2: um, you it is it is the first half of the movie. It is the equivalent to the Seinfeld episode where they want to open a bakery that just sells muffin tops.
1: Right. They um and, that's and that is one. what. One of the things that's written really well about this movie is they don't make the players too awful. Um, You know, Wes Isaac has a lot of talent. uh, He needed refinement. You know, Charlie Sheen was just figuring out that he was, you know, that he was uh, nearsighted. And once Mm -hmm. once they figured that part out, he was fine. Um, You know, Tom Berenger, he he he's the one that sort of has to overcome his own age. And Dorn is, you know, the pretty boy who has to sort of, you know, overcome um, to, to a degree his, his, his age as well. But also the fact that, you know, that he's, he has to get over his own ego. So- well,
2: look, here's the, here's the thing. And here is how it's both like almost every other sports movie you've ever seen in the best way, but in the way that it builds its house on top of that formula sets it apart from every other house on a block, especially well particularly in terms of baseball movies. No, you don't have a team where a team where every single player is necessarily incompetent or incapable or has no business being on the field with anybody with anybody else. That's not the case at all. And I think that's a product of the distinguishing factor that this is one of the very very few maybe I would even dare say the only baseball movie that is this brutally honest about what the game actually is and especially since it was made since it was made right around 1989 because here's the thing about sports movies if you go down the ones about the major sports, they have almost entirely, they've almost all of them, like three out of four of them, like, okay, yeah, four out of four, have had at least one movie, and in some cases several, that were truly brutally honest about the nature of the game. There were no rose-colored glasses when it came to any given Sunday. There were none when it came to the program, and folks, as somebody who for two years attended a school that lived, breathed, ate, shat, and pissed high school football, yeah, varsity blues was only barely an exaggeration, and I say that having gone to a Missouri high school. You talk to somebody who went to uh, Texas? School you know in Texas, where the where varsity blues is actually set um, sitting in a movie in a movie I imagine with a bunch of alumni of one of those schools who either didn't play football there or who maybe played football and it just wasn't that big a deal. It's gotta be like listening to King of the Hill dialogue on an hour and a half loop because every scene all you keep hearing is yep yep, yep. Yep, <laughs> just one after another after another. Uh, basketball? Okay, we got blue chips. That was, uh, for its time, uh, a pretty unabashed essay on college basketball. It wasn't a great movie. It was pretty good. But it was mostly pretty honest about just how, sh- how shady and down low the recruitment process could get. Baseball? with the exception of Major League, everything is that same undying, almost obnoxious air of idyllic nostalgia and, and, and just kind of those sort of lenses that always just follows the game everywhere. And season after season, it's if you've ever known, just one of the real... The real serious fundamentalist, true believer died in a wool baseball fans. You've met at least one of the guys that around opening day. You, they, I, I knew one guy who would do this on social media every season, and it always made me roll my fucking eyes at it. <laughs> uh, you know, like baseball is that time of year in springtime when grown men become boys. Atop freshly cut outfield grass, and beneath the outfield lights, and it harkens back to a time, back to a time, when men were men and they wore fantastic hats, and women were baby dispensers and wore and wore dresses and made fantastic meatloafs, and candy cost a nickel. And certain folk weren't allowed on golf courses unless they were serving drinks or running from the management. And, and, <laughs> and, and, ruck, and Rocking, mom's vagina smelled like apple pie. And you could be sitting on your front stoop. And Joe DiMaggio might walk by you and pat you on the head and hand you a fistful of candy on his way into your house to go fuck your mother in the ass while your father watched. And we didn't know that Mickey Mantle had so beaten his liver that it was crawling out of his mouth every morning to bitch-slap him awake. Oh, such a glorious time. God, every baseball movie, with the exception of this one, um the natural. Okay, the natural is baseball as everybody wishes it still was and kind of deludes themselves into thinking it is, as opposed to a game where, you know, <laughs> the highlight of this entire week that's been replayed on Sports Center after Sports Center isn't a big home run or a dramatic acrobatic catch or or a gem of a no-hitter. no hitter. No. It's Jose Batista making a hard slide and popping up. It's already doubled up, and and uh, Odor from the Texas Rangers dropping him with one of the most beautiful right crosses I've seen outside of the UFC. You know, Major League doesn't bother with any of that. This was made in 1989. You know what was happening in baseball in 1989, folks? Uh, Allow me to paint you a picture of what was already starting. We had already had one player strike. Salaries were already inflated. Ricky Henderson had already discovered the magic of speaking in the third person. Uh, Nobody was quite acknowledging it at the time, (laughs) but... Jose Canseco and Mark McGuire were more juiced up than a fucking Orange Julius and cranking out 40-some home run run seasons every year. It was just when we were starting to really see a lot of high-profile players get busted for cocaine. In fact, I believe it was right around this time that Doc Gooden and Daryl Strawberry were pissing away their careers while they were burning out their nostrils. This was kind of the game as it was. It was a bunch of overplayed, ad, overpaid adults playing a game and pretty much acting with no, acting with no sense of respons- with no sense of responsibility. And there was no love of the game. There was love of money and all the excesses that came with it. Um, hell, when the movie when the movie starts. Uh, Jake Taylor is playing down in Mexico. He wakes up next to uh, next to well, I mean, someone. We never find out who. And when he's told that he's being given a shot with the Indians, he thinks it's a practical joke and tells them that it's not fucking funny. His knees are killing him. And that if they were going to play this rip on him, they could have at least pretended to be from the Yankees. Um, our manager of the team is Selling tires, <laughs> and based gets to so. Oh, I don't I don't know. I'll call you back. I'll call you back. I got a set of white walls. I got to start or something like that. As we pointed out before, Rick Vaughn was in the penitentiary. Uh Dorn is pulling his ole act on every single ball because he doesn't want one to pop him up, pop up, and Kirby pucking him right in the eye. Um. It's the game as it is. It's not pretending that it's something. It's not just like how nowadays um, it's it's hard to kind of watch something for me, like for love of the game, because I'm going, okay, this is not what Major League Baseball is about, though. This is not what the game is any is anymore, because that came out kind of right around the time when baseball was still trying to sort of reclaim its identity, right when steroids were starting to become a thing, or at least a publicly acknowledged thing. It's nice to see that, and it's nice to see the movie play that up for laughs and just kind of take the piss out of the game, and the most remarkable part about it is it's an entire movie that operates with a Major League Baseball license whose running joke is pretty much the ongoing raking over the coals of how utterly fucking terrible the Cleveland Indians have been that's the entire that's the entire that's the entire joke um i mean you can say what you will about angels in the outfield kind of playing that up for laughs a little bit and turning it into a rallying inspirational story that's not the gag with this movie the gag for 99% of it is just utter remarkable, unthinkable event of the Cleveland Indians actually contending for a title. And funny enough, here we are over 20, over 20 years later, and the only one to bring a title, title to Cleveland in recent memory was when Stepa Myosic I'm sorry if I mispronounced his name uh, separated Fabricio Verdun from his senses in the first round this past Saturday. By the way, good on you, Stepa. Congratulations, man. Um, Oh, Cleveland has dropped two World Series since then, one to the Braves, one to the Marlins. It makes it – it's got the formula. It's got everything there that you expect. You've got a ragtag team, but they're not exactly terrible. They're capable enough. It's the ownership that's against them the entire time. Uh, You've got a little bit of conflict among the team, lots of entertaining little side stories. and you've ultimately got a satisfying climax that kind of rounds everything out full circle but the other thing about it is it's a movie that like the original bad news bears you couldn't make today and I'll tell you why it's because especially when you have the uh the kind of the kind of racist element with uh, the one white pitcher and Serrano and You've got kind of the classist attitude of Dorn toward Vaughn. It's the kind of thing where elements like that—you in comedies nowadays—the only time you sort of see that played up is if it's in a situation where somebody is kind of being awkwardly called out on it. No, oh, they—they—they they have to backpedal because they didn't realize how that would done. Would come off and they didn't mean it that way. They didn't mean it that way at all. And they say something that digs their hole a little bit deeper. No, no, fuck that. That's not always the way it goes. Sometimes you need to just have kind of a kind of a racist or a jerkwad classist character who just doesn't fucking learn anything. <laughs> um that's that's closer to the truth of the way of the way things really are. I mean, ask anybody who's ever sat and listened to a rant by John Rocker. Think that guy has really learned anything in his old age? Oh, he's as ridiculously racist as he ever was, despite the fact that you know basically got him ran out of baseball. But you've got you've even got your elements of like um, uh, again the one white picture, I'm blanking on his name. I feel bad about that uh he gets kind of caught by Vaughn putting a little, putting a little something something under under the bill of his cap or on his forehead to smear on the ball this wasn't that far removed from when Gaylord Perry was a really still infamous for that for throwing the spit, for throwing the spitball it's there're movies that are just too honest to get made now, to get made nowadays, because it's not enough for some people that you can kind of see Dickery getting punished or, or Dickery being depicted honestly. You have to kind of manufacture some kind of world where it doesn't exist at all. Um, so I don't know.
1: Did I leave anything out, Mark? No, I think you pretty much covered it. One thing I want to yeah. say about this movie before we move on to Major League Two, and I'm and it needs bringing it up now because when I bring it up again in Major League Two, the like it's successful in the first movie, and not as successful in the second is, is the character of uh, Rachel Phelps. And, you know, she plays a very fun villain. This. She has the line of the movie when Rick Vaughn walks out and they're playing loud things. She's like, I hate that fucking song. Um, she has. She has <laughs> She has a clear motivation for what she wants to do as a villain. Um, she does everything in her power to do it, uh, but she isn't mustache twirly necessarily. She actually, she actually there's a couple of scenes where um, it's one of my favorite things that she does where she's actually overly complimentary of the team, but she does so in a way where she's trying to cause them to panic. And at the end of it, she walks out and goes, they don't want to shrink their little sphincters. Um,
2: yeah, she she wasn't a wasn't cool. that in Major League 2? Ah. Uh, I she doesn't I I thought I thought I thought it was because I know she came in and cuz I remember her big thing was that she started bagging on the returning players and apparently something that that happened between the two movies where they really hit major slumps in the previous years ALCS.
1: Uh, yeah, I don't I could have sworn there were there was two different times where she comes in uh, with with the team. In any case, doesn't matter. Um, the the point is, she's a very fun character, and she serves her purpose very very well in the first movie. But once they've once they've won and her plan is kaput, uh that's really the end of that. That that should have been the end of that character. I'm gonna stop there for a second, but I'm gonna readdress that point. Um, just just to say that she she's a very very good villain one of the better villains in you know in in film uh, in film history where I don't have a whole lot of complaints about her you know, the kind of stuff that Robert Winfrey and I often talk about um, but everything good I just said about her I'm going to take back in the second movie um, so the second movie Major League Two is a continuation of uh, what happened in the first movie, right down to Bob Uecker's narration of everything that happened in the first movie, to get you caught up in case you missed it. Uh, we lose Wesley Snipes and we gain Omar Epps in the same role, which bears its own conversation. Um, is, 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 Omar
2: is Omar Epps being recapped in anything Epps think, Epps really considered a game,
1: though? it be? should it be? So you have Omar Epps um, replacing Wesley Snipes, but playing the same character and doing his best. I mean, it's not, it's not his fault that Wesley Snipes didn't come back and the writers didn't just invent a new character for him. He does, it, he does his best to play that character that Wesley Snipes made his own. Um, so it's kind of hard to bag on the guy for trying to do his job um, in an uphill battle. Uh, where the characters have moved to, well, Phelps is out. Roger Dorn has, has bought the team. In a really silly scene, by the way, which I'll get to in a second. But he's bought the team, and now they're making, you know, they're they're being treated like a regular baseball team. You know, they bring out they bring in some um, uh, free agents. One of which is another catcher uh, from the Oakland A's, who's one of the villains of the film, as it turns out. Uh, Charlie Sheen's character Rick Vaughn is, is now, since he's now a media sensation is now looking to clean up his image. He's got a he's sleeping with his PR person. He's growing his hair out, um, and he's also trying to bury up his pitching game. Yeah. So you have that. You have Tom Berenger who's trying to hang on to one more year playing baseball. You know, as his knees start to give out, they bring in another catcher by the name of Rube Baker, which. It's a funny character, you know, it's, it, it's like they have to, like Hollywood 101, there must be a dumb southerner, uh, but I don't, you know, there must be some, you know, oh golly gee, straight off the turn of truck kind of kid, uh, and his gimmick is that he can't throw the ball back from home plate, <laughs> so, um, so there's a fun thing where Tom Berenger works with him and trying to get him to, uh, to, to focus on something else other than throwing the ball so that he'll just do it naturally. Uh, which gives which gives us some great lines as he starts quoting from lingerie catalogs in um, Playboy. <laughs> <I was> <laughs> I
2: was
1: yeah, um, Serrano's back, and this time he's a Buddhist, and so his, that angry edge that made him hit homers is gone. So now we don't have the problem of his back being scared of curveballs. Now we have the problem of his, is he's uh, just in love with life and not playing as aggressively as he used to. So to so later on in the movie. Where some trades are made, and the villain goes to the the villain team, you know, in place of the New York Yankees, now the villain team is the Chicago White Sox. They they get Tanaka or whatever the hell his name was,
0: and Tanaka, Tanaka.
1: Yeah, there's some great exchanges between those two, as uh, as basically he punks Serrano a couple of times and says, "You have no balls." Uh, no, no no Raba. No. Mobiles, Yes. Um, and that, that becomes a running gag throughout the movie. So you have this, so you lose the antagonism of the Christian versus the versus the voodoo guy, and you gain the the, the uh, antagonism of the um, the Japanese samurai versus the, the you know the Buddhist pacifist, such as it was. Um, and this year, and so there were two things happening. One, the, they're all, they get off to a rough start. The tendons starts to drop. Uh, we have the super fan character in uh, Randy Quaid, who's hilarious in this movie. He's just just a loudmouth uh, critic of the whole thing. And at first he starts off, you know, overly supportive. And even as the team is going down the tube, he's like, they'll pull it around, they'll pull it out. And finally he just sort of throws his hands up. Now now the team can't do anything right in his eyes, even when they're winning. And it's, it's very, and the, the final exchange between him and Vaughn is very funny. Um, so Randy, Randy Quaid makes the movie for me, uh, up yours, Lardmouth. mouth. Um, blow out your ass lard mouth. Yeah. I love that. So one of the, one of the arcs of this movie is that because the team starts off so slow and does so poorly, um, and, and don't, o- Doran overpaid for the team, the team's running out of money because they can't get enough people to come to the games. Um, that cause, that causes not quite the contentious issue they had in the first movie, but Dorn is, but Dorn does some things with the team that go against them in order to save money. Um, one thing he doesn't do that, one thing that he does do that that has nothing really to do with the team, it's just a very funny gag, is he's got advertisements all over the back wall, which Bob Uecker makes fun of in the movie. It's, 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 and it's, and it it made me laugh because only in, what year was that? Um... 90 or 92, whatever the, whenever that movie came out, could you, make, could you make a joke out of putting advertisements anywhere that nobody in 2016 would really get because advertisements oh, no. are God. You know, every every arena is named after a bank or a lawyer's office or a snicker bar or whatever,
2: you know. Well, Mark, that's, that, that's because it was new that's because right. back then that was a that was a new thing to baseball that they were making fun of, and it carries that on. It, it kind of finds more little uh, tropes and unfortunate little pratfalls of America's supposed pastime to just keep taking the piss out of uh, right. things like the over like the overpaid asshole superstar. Superstar player who's not an arrogant fuckwit like Dorn. Um, he is just flat out an asshole. That's just all there, all there is to him. Um, stuff like yeah, having uh, having uh, having flashy veterans like Dorn who want to hold on to just uh, to just one more just one more year, who. Uh, just kind of miss the game and really can't let it and really can't let it go uh, it's but the problem is, is along the way while they're making fun of it, I think it really kind of takes the sports movie sequel formula and instead of making its own, it kind of starts humping it shamelessly
1: uh I one thing I liked about the movie was Rick Vaughn's story. I liked, I liked the, um, you know, you, lost, the lost sense of self and having to re, and re-find your identity. Um, it was,
2: it was it, cliche, it, it, but, it, but it was all right.
1: I, I think his arc is the thing that anchors the movie to me. Because um, everything else is, is, is sort of rides the rail of fine to silly. Um, it's all overall it's an entertaining movie major league one and two are both very entertaining in their own ways um, major league two has some of the problems of, as you said of it being a little hackneyed but i think um charlie sheen's arc is genuine enough and, and he plays it well enough that you're you're still drawn to the picture what i wanted to talk about that doesn't work for me is i feel like the is this is something we talked about with beverly hills cop and and a lot of franchises run into this. I've brought this up before, and that is the idea of everything we did in the first movie that was successful. We have to do again. We, we no new no new ideas, and so we start out with a very interesting idea of of the player rising to own the team, and the struggles that go with it. I was into the movie when Corbin Burnson's character of, of Dorn was the owner, and he was struggling. And a more creative, more interesting movie is him trying to is. To keep keep the team together and being made to do things, at, like because at the start of the film, that are seemingly bad for the team, but he's forced into those positions because he, uh, you know, they're running out of money, and you know you could have had scenes like you, you know, well you guys would have X Y Z if you'd only be better players and you know that sort of thing, um, sort of sort of the uh, the accidental villain, if you will. But instead, they gave him an out, and they made him a, w- a very wimpy character, one that isn't sympathetic at all, because he sells the team right back to, uh, to Rachel again. And then mm-hmm. she just does the same thing. She, this time, she's out for revenge, which is even stupid, <laughs> which even more stupid. You know, the first time around, you get why she's doing what she's doing. She wants to take the team to Miami, and there's every intention of them having a winning team in Miami, but she's got to get there first. Okay, we're with you there. You got a solid motivation the first time around. The second time around, oh, you got your feelings got hurt. <laughs> you, you sell the team for you sell the team for exponentially more than it's worth to this poor schlub, uh, Richard uh, Dorn. And when you ha- and then you buy back the team because you want to take revenge because they embarrassed you. I mean, you want to talk about a man plot.
2: plot I think I've ever heard.
1: Yeah, it's just lazy is what it is. And so instead of doing interesting things with the characters that you, you create, you cut the balls off one and you bring back, you bring back another one to do the exact same schtick she was, that, that she did in the first movie. And those are my major complaints about Major League Two. Um, thank God you had the, the Charlie Sheen arc in this thing, or you'd be stuck with all of that, and all of that kind of sucks.
2: It's, It's, I mean, it's, 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 it's it's sadly predictable. predictable. I mean, even, even the,
0: it's
2: it's really kind of sad that the whole arc with Vaughn is the thing holding the whole thing together because you can tell from where it starts, where it's going to end. You know, and that doesn't make the way the moment is actually crafted in the game any less satisfying you still kind of have to smile at it, but it's it's one of those things that always reminds me of a, a running joke um, that Jeremy and I have always had being wrestling fans. And it was about the way that WCW turned Hulk Hogan's face again after being a heel with the NWO for so long. Uh, I think it was I think it was on an episode of Thunder. God love him, it wasn't even an episode of Nitro. Um Hogan, who had been wearing the black and white of the NWO for so long, uh, has this moment earlier in the show where it's obvious he's turned face again and he comes out and he comes out later and he's wearing the red and white the red and yellow again <laughs> and Jeremy claims that he and his his late friend Steve, rest in peace, big guy, um, (laughs) pretty much screamed at the screen,
0: all he did was change his underwear.
2: (laughs) Because he came out to the same usual thunderous ovation. Uh, Although, as a little personal postscript, what that always kind of reminds me of now, Um, although this happened years after Major League Two came out, um, my friend Rodney and I were watching a documentary about the Orlando Magic uh, the other the other night, uh, especially about the experiment to try to kind of build a team around Shaquille O'Neal and Penny Hardaway. And one of the things it touched on was when the Magic met the Bulls the year that Jordan came out of retirement. And What that whole thing with Vaughn always kind of reminds reminds me of a little bit is how that year, uh, for those who maybe weren't so familiar with how that season played out, Jordan came back uh, about three-fifths of the way through the season or so, something like that, and he had been out for the previous two years playing baseball, making Space Jam, and he... He came back wearing number 45, which has personal meaning for him. That was his uh, brother Jeffrey's number when he played in high school. And, you know, for most of the season, the rust was showing. There were were moments, field flashes of brilliance, but it just didn't quite seem like that was Michael. And... You know, it gets kind of carried over into the playoffs and right into one game with the Magic, where Jordan was dribbling up court, and uh, Nick Anderson, who was a very good shooting guard but nowhere near on Jordan's level, just was able to just jog right up behind Jordan and just swipe the ball away from him and and just take it right back the other direction. And Anderson after the game <laughs> made the unfortunate decision to kind of pop off a little bit at Jordan and say that, you know, number twenty three would have never let me get away with that. I could have never done I could have never done that to to the Michael that wore number twenty three. Well, the next game comes along and for the first half Michael wears number forty five and then the second half he comes out wearing number twenty three. And proceeds to torch the magic for forty points, and was you know kind of playing like himself again. So it's a little bit, it's a little bit of both. It kind of reminds me both of the ridiculous of that, of that Hulk Hogan moment, and the kind of corniness of the fuck. All he did was change his pants. That's it. <laughs> and the fact that I don't know what it was. I mean maybe it was a mental thing for Michael, but yeah, he was a di- he was a different guy when he came out where came out wearing the twenty three. Uh he was the Michael who won the three championships again. So but still it's something that you see coming practically from about the start of the movie you get the feeling that at some point there, there's going to be a come-to-Jesus moment with somebody on this team who's kind of lost their way, and he's going to propel them all the way back. And lo and behold, that's pretty much exactly what happens. But overall, it's, it's not major league, but at the same time, it's not nearly as unnecessary as what followed.
1: So let's talk about that for a second, and, and allow me to say this. So well, the first two movies made money. Um, the uh, the first movie on a uh, eleven million dollar budget made fifty million dollars, just about. So that's why that that of course was the reason why we have a Major League Two. Now Major League Two has a twenty five million dollar budget and does thirty million dollars. Not great. It needed to do about sixty million in order to be uh, about fifty million rather in order to be um, truly profitable, but. Uh, still made a little bit more than their budget, and if you're gonna do a third movie, now they, they really should have stopped here. But there's a story to be told. Um, if you really want to draw this out, for one more movie, see if you can, you know, bring back the spirit of the first movie and get over the extremely negative reviews that, that Major League Two got, which I think get a little unfair. Um, you could have done the next one if you get the cast back and go to, and, and go to the World Series. Maybe even take us. Maybe even do something really crazy and have them lose the World Series in the movie instead of always having to win the day. Um, but there's there's room for a story to be told with that as the backdrop. Instead, we they do something really weird, and that is they can't get the cast back. Okay, the only person they get back from the original cast um, that wasn't you know like a, a side player, talking of, of, the, of the of the major leads. Um, you have Corbin Burnson, uh, who who is the um, owner of the Minnesota Twins. And the setup to this thing is that there's a AAA minor league team of his that needs management. And he wants Scott Bakula to, to be the manager. And, and from there, it's essentially this and from there it, it, it's your prototypical sports movie with a minor league baseball team. And either you like the characters and have fun with this movie or you don't, but that's, solely what it rests on. Um,
2: Mm -hmm. I would would correct you slightly and point out that uh, they did also get Rube Walker. uh, I I don't know who the actor is. I don't care to look him up.
1: um, And uh, Taka Tanaka
2: and uh, Pedro Serrano. Back.
1: Yeah, I know. I, I said of the lesser characters, I got a few of them back, but of like the major ones, the only, you know, Charlie Sheen, Wesley Snipes, slash Omar S. Corbin Bernstein, the only one, the uh, Tom Berenger, rather, the only one that got back was Corbin uh, Bernstein, who is the least likable. Oh, we yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, like, we get the one guy who you know who you really like in the movie. who was almost the villain in the first one. So whatevs. Um, th- it was almost as if this they had this movie lying around. And it had a different name to it, you know. Um, you know, Schleppi's baseball. And there's some producer who, uh, you know, who was just like, "Oh, I gotta get this thing made, but it's kind, you know, but it's kind of a shit script, and we don't have a lot of really A A A list actors here. Fuck it, we'll change the name to Major League. We'll do we'll do a minor rewrite on this thing, and we'll call it Major League Three. You know, okay. it's
2: funny sometimes, rarely, but sometimes. This actually works and turns into a good franchise entry, kind of like Hellraiser Inferno. Most of the time, not so much. Uh, no, it's like what wasn't there? Wasn't one of the Die Hard movies originally supposed to be something else? And they instead just yeah. kind of kind of wedged John McClane in there, and
1: they, just sort we, of made so, it Die Hard. We see it a lot. We see Hollywood sort of take a. Um, a, a script that has nothing to do with anything and in order to get it made they have to start attaching things to it that don't belong this, this, this sticks out like a sore thumb this movie the quality is not great the acting is par to subpar and i'll tell you who i'll tell you right now ted mcginley normally when we talk about scene chewing we do it in in sort of uh it's Fun, you know, clearly Charlize Theron is just eating up the scenery and it's fantastic. And you love to watch an actress who is bigger than life tear up the scenery. Or an Al Pacino, she's got a great ass, you know. Yes, <laughs> Al Pacino, we love it. Go more, do more scenery, sir. Um, I mean, you love that sort of thing. That if, if, if Christopher what, Christopher Walken has basically made
2: a career out of it at this point.
1: Sure. Um, you know, King Louie, I want to be like you, ooh, ooh, um, more, more of him, more of him talking, please. But then there's Ted McGinley chewing the scenery, where it's just painful to watch, and it almost comes across like bad sketch comedy, you know, it's just like, it, <laughs> It reminds me of Jane Silent Bob Strike Back, where you have the one director who's just sitting in his, I think it's Gus Van Zandt, sitting in the director's chair, just counting his money, not watching the film. Or, I know you hate hate the show, and I don't want to get off on on a tangent here, but there's an episode of The Big Bang Theory, where Penny's being directed in a shitty film, and the director's not even looking at what's, what's being shot, he's just on his phone, and he's like, "All right, cut. To the point where Leonard walks over and is like, no, are you going to pay attention to what you're doing here? <laughs> you know, I just, I imagine there was, a, there was a director in name only on this thing. John Warren is his name, and this had to be the, the easiest but most horrible job he's ever had, as he sat in the thing and was like, "All right, dumb fucking act," <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> and <laughs> fucking cut. You know, this is, it's a shit movie. Um, <laughs> And I, and it does, and it's not helped by. I mean, Scott Bakula is fine. Corbin Burnson is fine. Ted McGinley is terrible. Um, Ted McGinley, most famous for Marcy's husband and, um Married with Children, the second one. And he, like I said, he plays the uh, the manager of the AAA base. Of, no, he plays the manager of the Twins, and he starts off as just sort of a mustache-twirly, you know, I'm better than you. I'm the rich guy, villain type. And he turns into, like, a scene-chewing uh, moron, <laughs> you know? He, like, Scott Bakula does a thing where he has him, like, mess up his hair. And, oh, look at the goof. He's messed, he's, his hair is messed up. Aha! Uh-huh. Like, uh.
2: Well, and, <laughs> and, and you know, you know in, in all, <laughs> all fairness, fair when we were talking about this we on Facebook, Facebook, Winfrey, Winfrey up, pipes up. up, and god damn, that echo. I hate that thing. Um... Robert it just Winfrey comes
1: piped goes. up... So weird. The echo just comes and goes. It's weird, and I don't know why. I, I, I really wish we'd do something to fix
2: that. <laughs> um, but uh, Winfrey piped up when we were talking about how bad Major League was, and he said something to the effect of, oh, well, what do you expect from, some, from something starring Scott Bakula? And... The thing is, and this is something that the other day I was watching a few episodes of uh, Quantum Leap with uh, my friend Allison Pregler, uh, who uh, is the host of the very very funny show Movie Nights. I strongly recommend you all go, you all go check out as soon as possible, Doug. Um, but one of the things we noted about Bakula is that he really is kind of at his best when he's just kind of a a slightly stymied straight man. Yeah. Um that's really hang on a sec. Hang on just a moment. Okay. If anybody happened to hear a sudden burst of cult of personality, that was my text message ring <laughs> ringtone. <laughs> <laughs> um, oddly, oddly enough, the lovely Miss Steph was just asking me how my show, how my show went. <laughs> but anyway, and in case you listen to this later, hi Steph, love you, honey. Um, but no, he's he's not really the type who is what what you call well, like you said, a real scenery chewer. That. That isn't who that isn't who he is that, that's not naturally in naturally in his character. he's just kind of slightly awkward and confused. It's why he kind of fit uh quantum leap so well, which funny enough, my response to Winfrey was to send him a the gift from The Simpsons movie of Homer falling into the sinkhole and giving the double deuces as he was as he was being sucked down uh for exactly that reason and said. As a this is for me, Allison, and every quantum lead fan um so in a way, it kind of fits his character uh for where he is, in that he's kind of out of place, and what exactly the hell am i supposed to be am I supposed to be doing here uh kind of a little bit of a fish out of water
1: yeah, so back, an earnest charisma back. him I. Even- He's about as white post as any you know, Caucasian male actor as you'll ever find in Hollywood. Scott, if you need an everyman, Scott Bakula your guy. Uh, and he's oh, yeah, fine. Yeah, definitely. And, and, and I'll tell you, looking at his television roles versus his film roles, this almost should have been a made-for-TV movie as an after-school special. Let's not get crazy here. And, he, and, and this would have been perp- a perfect vehicle for him. He's not bad in this. Like I said, the one that the one that's bad is Ted McGinley. Um, everybody else in this movie, like I said, this is about as paint-by-numbers a sports movie as you're going to find. And there's no, there's nothing interesting about it. I said on Facebook, I said, this is a special kind of bad. And what I meant by that was, it's not interesting in any way. There are no interesting choices being made. Um, Ted McGinley's villain is so bad it should be studied. <laughs> um, Roger Bourne. <laughs> <laughs> who play, again played by uh, Corbin Bernson, is the was the least likable lead of Major League One um, was even more well, unlikable uh, in Major League Two and is now like the, like one of the anchors of this film and he couldn't have been less interesting. And I guess well, that that's the,
2: thing the was right. The thing was, at least in Major League One he was kind of supposed to be the Yeah.
1: No, he does a fine job in Major League One, but the, but it's weird. It would be like, you know, let me take the most interesting, the the, the least interesting villain in in, in Star Wars: A New Hope, and let's go give him his own movie. I'm like, why? Why would you? <laughs> hey, you Stormtrooper who bumps your head walking through the Death Star, you want your own feature film? Hmm. We'll call it Star Wars: Back to the Death Star. Wait, that was The Force Awakens. Anywho, um, yeah. So, <laughs> I love that movie. I'm just kidding. Uh, anyway, so, <laughs> I, I don't have a whole lot more to say about this, especially in the interest of time. We've got to start to wrap here. It's just, this was just poorly made. The actors themselves, and I feel bad for them because most of the actors that are in this thing, you know, like you know, two, the, two parts of your leagues in The Shield, uh, Walt, Walton Goggins, who, Walton Goggins is an amazing actor. And you just need to watch. Yeah. Realize how good he really is. Like the shield, not that the shield didn't do him justice, but it, but but that was so um, Michael Chiklis's show. It was sort of you know, and he's and, and Walton Goggins' character of Shane is so slimy. It was hard to get a, you know a good read of how good of an actor Walton Goggins is. And if you watch Justified, you're like, wow, that guy's Oscar caliber. And if you need any more evidence of that, go watch The Hateful Eight. Um, he's amazing. Uh, but then you also have good old Lemonhead, uh, who plays Lance the Dance Petty, uh, Kenny Johnson in this thing. And again, he's fine. And Bob Uecker's funny. And the guy that plays Pops is good. And you, know, and you have, again, they bring back Tanaka and Pedro, and they have, they have a funny chemistry together. And again, they're all acting in earnest. They're, they're trying. I have no fault with the actor. And, and like I said, the writing is just so painfully plain. I guess that's my problem with it. The whole thing is, once again, you have a ragtag team of players that are, you know, that are all over the place, and they have to be brought together and made to win, and eventually they do. And then there's the bully team. And in the, first, the first time they, they take on the bully team, they almost beat them, but the villain turns the lights off because it's an episode of fucking Monday Night Raw run by William Regal. Anywho. Hey, um, come
2: on. I actually kind of liked it when they did that. No, he actually did that really
1: the, the, the he, only
2: he problem, problem was, well yeah the, the only problem was william like william liked drugs and that and that whole angle never really got a chance to play out
1: well no I, I was just drawing a, drawing the fact that that he ended an episode of raw early and Ted McGinley oh, literally yeah. turned the lights off yeah
2: I know and I'm just being a pedantic dickwad.
1: um and so <laughs> you know wasn't touching that with a twenty foot pole um and so, <laughs> okay, I get it. You agree. Um, and, so you, and so, okay, this time, you know, Rocky's really going to get him in the rematch kind of a thing. They're going to, you know, they're going to up the ante. And if the good guy loses, he loses his job. And if the bad guy loses, he loses his job. And golly gee whiz, what's going to happen, ladies and gentlemen? It's a shitty Hollywood movie. What do you think's going to happen? The good guys win. <laughs> you know, oh, whatever, yeah. whatever issues they were trying to overcome, they overcome them. That's what I mean by it's a special kind of bad. Winfrey and I got into this with a film that we reviewed a little ways back, and he was like, the plot is... um, He started to make the comment that it's just the same old plot over and over and over again. I said, hey, there's only so many plots out there. And I'm okay with you using... uh, I'm okay with you using a hackneyed plot because it's all about the execution. If there are five plots in the world, and and we've had movies for over 100 years... I'm gonna have to forgive people for using the same kinds of plots over and over and over again. what, right, your, what right. you, sh- you you shouldn't judge a movie on the ha- on the plot necessarily so much as unless it's weird and all over the place um so much as the, you should be judging the execution of a tried and true plot and that's 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 really my summation of back to the miners is nothing interesting going on here this is a painting of a sandwich okay it's you know it, it's a fruit bowl it's just there and there's nothing special about it that's what I mean by it's a special kind of bad you know you're when you make a film and you're out you and you're afforded the opportunity to make a feature film that's backed by Warner Brothers of all Studios um, you really need to be taking the time and effort to make what you're doing somewhat special and stand out and there was no Fucking effort put into this thing by anybody other than the actors whatsoever, and Portia McGinley um, need need a direction. Something awful.
2: Um, are are you? Have you ever watched the show, uh, the Netflix original BoJack Horseman? No. Okay. One, I would highly recommend it. Just saying. Uh, but number two, when it comes to everything you just described, things that are just kind of, kind of just there. Uh, my my off referred to buddy Jeremy and I. Uh we we've developed kind of a shorthand sometimes. Um almost like that that episode of Star Trek The Next Generation. I I forget what the race was or what or what the exact quotes were, but um it's a race that pretty much communicates exclusively in like a handful of metaphors to describe it, to describe anything. We developed kind of that same shorthand with our conversations and one of the things that we've come up with is we adopted a line from the character of Vincent adult man from the first season of the first season of Bojack who is um, as nobody else seems to realize three toddlers standing on each other's on each other's shoulders in an overcoat Um, and at one point he just says. I think it's something something like, I went to the stock market, I did a business. It just, just like it's the most unremarkable thing in, thing in the world. And so anytime uh, we have to refer to something as being completely mediocre, unremarkable, forgettable, really nothing more to say about it, we just say, it went to the stock market, it did a business. Yeah. Well, that's that's basically what that's basically in a nutshell what back to the miners is uh, standing alone it might have actually been an okay movie again by okay i mean i admit that's a little bit of a stretch but it's inoffensive i i pat piped up at one point and said it said oh it has more of a right to exist in major d2 back to the miners did and um, Pat, of course, being our own particular super contrarian analog to comic book guy. um, I have to wonder if he wasn't saying that just specifically because trolling Pat be trolling. Um, Because what it ultimately comes down to with almost any movie is, were you not entertained? Did you have a good time? Did you enjoy yourself? You know what? I enjoyed myself a lot more with Major League Two. A whole hell of a lot more than I enjoyed Back to the Miners. Because Back to the Miners, that's truly a movie that has no reason to exist. No. Uh, it, it doesn't bring anything fresh to the table. It doesn't even bring anything that's all that formally comfortable. It is cliches. The cliches are just there, and they're not even executed very well. Um, it's really
1: an empty shell of it, what the franchise was aiming for, especially in I, all the hope, things well,
2: Yeah, was aiming it, It's like fat vanilla pudding is what it is, in the sense that it's vanilla pudding. Chances are, no, it's not going to be re- going to be remarkable. But at the same time, you look at it and you go, how could somebody possibly screw this up? <laughs> how could somebody possibly get this, possibly just make it completely unenjoyable Because even, even vanilla pudding and all its mediocrity still, is still not bad. It can still be kind of, can still be kind of satisfying. This, when
1: we when we talked about Jurassic Park, I coined the phrase "more dinosaurs" because we, you know, as we were saying is like instead of looking at the movie and saying how could we execute a plot about you know bringing dinosaurs back to life in a new and interesting way um, and really up the ante, of the franchise and up the stakes, and instead they just said "fuck all that," let's just throw more dinosaurs in there. And uh, and onesies were sent to my house that said "more dinosaurs" on it, and it's on T-shirts, and it's a, it's a it was a runaway thing. I'm gonna I'm gonna <laughs> coin. I'm gonna coin another phrase now, and that is, th- and that is third movie laziness, and that is. Well, like- no,
2: I would. If okay, if um, if we're talking about the the close relative to the phrase more dinosaurs, this is a major league movie where you where you're looking for everything that you expect to see, judging from the first two movies in a major league movie, and instead, you're Ian Malcolm. Just riding along, looking into the camera, and saying, You do expect to have uh dinosaurs on your dinosaur tour, don't you john uh, <laughs> that is that is truly what is truly what back to the but back to the miners is um it's not it's not offensively bad, but fucking hell it, well, like, you're right. like a, it really does. really it really doesn't deserve to bear uh, the Major League name because it makes it makes only the barest attempt to really connect itself to that. And as we said uh, at the outset, it's very plain. Major League was slapped on there because they looked at what they had and realized there's no way anybody else in their right mind is going to have an actual interest
1: in seeing this movie. Two things. One, what I was getting at was so we've done a lot of movie franchises now in the years that this show has been in existence. It's almost as long as the as the Metal Hammer Dream. I started them both around the same time. So 2012, 2013, somewhere in there. Um, 2012, with you know minus hiatuses and all that. And one of the things that we come up with, one of the things that we come across again and again and again with a lot of the trilogies that we look at is, it is um, by the time they get to the third movie, it's like the first one is an amazing thing. And the second one, they're trying really hard. They just sort of whiff the ball. And the third one, it doesn't even feel like anyone's trying anymore. You know, it, it's like, I just, I want to be in the room for some of these pitch meetings for these third movies because they've got to be saying, fuck it. People will just go because it's the name, right? Because there's no effort being put into it. It's like they just, they, they scale back on budget, they scale back on, uh, on effort, they scale back on script. And, it's, and, and, and I wouldn't be going on about this except that I've noticed a pattern. So that's why I mean when I say like, you know, third, uh, the, the third movie laziness uh, hit this franchise and hit it hard as it hit many, many other movies that we've talked about. Um, there's another point that i was going to make here and I've completely forgotten it. So let's just end this podcast uh, by yeah. saying, you know, Major League one and two oh and I remember what it was. Um, funny enough that we're sitting lambasting uh, back to the mess saying it doesn't belong. Well, the people who made Major League One and Two uh, seem to agree with us because there's been talk that, uh, and we're going to run out of live time in just a second, so um, uh, after, I'm, after I say this, we're just going to get into plugs real quick, okay. but um, Charlie Sheen is actually uh, in, uh, in talks and in pre-production to do a Major League Three in which he's working with the younger team. So there's an acknowledgement out there among the people involved with the major league franchise that back to the minors doesn't count. <laughs> it's sort of maybe 2.5, you know, something along those lines. Um, but I, I, find that, I find that funny when even people involved in the franchise won't acknowledge part of the franchise. Um, I know you've said something similar about like Hellraiser and whatnot, and I think we've come across that before. So I, I just found that amusing. Um, But that being said, that's our look at baseball this month. Um, Go back and check out our review of the Bad News Bears. I hope you enjoyed our look here at Major League. Sean, any last words or plugs or uh, anything you want to tell the good people?
2: About all that I really got for this week, since it's kind of a slow week, is thank you so much, everybody, for listening live, downloading, checking us out any way that you can. Go and check us out on Facebook. If you're listening to this on YouTube, don't forget to like, comment, and subscribe. And otherwise, in the meantime, never dull your colors for someone else's canvas.
1: All right, we'll be back in two weeks, um, actually, on my birthday. We'll be looking at the uh, X-Men trilogy, X-Men 1, X2, United, and X3, The Last Stand. Uh, we're not looking at Wolverine or anything like that or First Class. That'll be for later dates down the line. Um, and we're doing that in celebration of the opening of X-Men Apocalypse, which we'll be reviewing, Robert Winfrey and I, the day before. Um, go back. You know, we've got a couple of good shows that we just dropped, not not the ongoing. We did a Marvel trivia show that's both on YouTube and in the Rattledge and Broadcasting Network, um, you know, Facebook's uh, iTunes, Stitcher, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, we just dropped a Metal Hammer of Doom review of uh, Hatebreeds, the Concrete Confessional. It was really, really good. That was um, Robert Cooper took the night off. It was just me and Jesse Starcher. A lot of fun was had. We got a lot of Civil War material up. We, uh, we did source material, Civil War, and Robert Winfrey and I reviewed it, uh, the new Civil War. That's out in theaters now. Go ahead and check that out. Robert Winfrey and I also just reviewed Money Monster, uh, which is the new um, sus- uh, suspense thriller that uh, is set against the uh, financial collapse uh, where George Clooney does his best impression of Jim Cramer. Robert Winfrey hated it. I liked it. We managed not to punch each other in the face over it. Uh, so go check out that review. It was actually a pretty good, uh, pretty good review for both of us. Um, Like I said, next week, Vector, Terminal Redux, uh, X-Men no. Angry Birds. That's next week. We'll be reviewing Angry Birds. We'll be looking at um, Vector, Terminal Redux. And uh, that's it. So uh, thank you for joining us tonight. Uh, Like I said, two weeks we'll be doing the X-Men stuff. Uh, So be well, be safe, and be